All right, Genesis 15. Genesis 15. Those who go by, who follow Christ, go by several different names. We know this. We say it all the time. Sometimes we're called Christians. Sometimes we're called saints. Sometimes we're called the beloved. Sometimes followers of the way in the the book of Acts. Sometimes disciples. But the word we use in this church, I've noticed over the years the most, is what? We use the word believers. We're always talking about, we call ourselves believers all the time. We, we call ourselves that because we're, we believe something. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the inspired word of God. The Bible has the inspired word of God. We believe in the promises of God. So, therefore, we are rightly called believers. But just because we are believers doesn't mean we always believe with full assurance. It's not always the case. Sometimes we entertain fears. Sometimes we harbor doubts within and are plagued by doubts. What is it we need? Well, we need reassurance. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We need reassurance when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the promises of God. We believe God, yes. We are, after all, believers, but sometimes it's more of a, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But the Lord understands that. He's gracious to us. He's gracious to Abram in this chapter. Instead of rebuking us, which he will do when it's necessary, he oftentimes reassures us, reminding us of his promises, Reminding us of his protection, of his peace, all these great things. That's what he does for Abram in chapter 15. This is what he will continue to do for Abram uh, because reassurance for God's people is an ongoing need, if you notice that. It's an ongoing need for people that need reassurance. And that's why our daily time in the Word is so important. Throughout the Bible, the uh, true people of God are reassured often by their Heavenly Father that it's going to be okay. God's in charge, whatever we're going through, even though it looks horrible out there for us. Things look bad. A lot of times I focus, I find myself focusing on the bad stuff going on instead of the Lord. But although things look bad, the Lord's out there to tell us, look, I've got it under control. I can reassure you. So last week or two weeks ago, we started off by talking about the Lord's reassuring word in verses 1 to 6. And the first thing we noticed was he reassures us in in spite of fear. Look at verse 1, just to recap a little bit. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. Don't fear. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Those words are intended to be a comfort to him, an encouragement to him. Obviously, he's afraid at this point. We don't know why yet. We know he's come through this battle in chapter 14. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks in a row. We talked about it uh, where he defeated these kings. However, I think in the context, he's afraid of this. He's afraid he's going to continue to be childless, he says that in verse 2, I'm childless, meaning that word means I'm childless and I'm continuing to be childless. What's going on here? You promised me a child. And yet, I'm not, I don't have a child. He's afraid he's not going to have a child. And the Lord says, don't fear, Abram, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. I think the reward in this verse is you're going to have children one day. It's going to happen like Psalm 127.3, uh, children are a reward from the Lord. And then, so in spite of fear, uh, God says, uh, he reassures him with his word, don't be afraid. And then in spite of, in light of doubt, he also reassures him with his word, same subject under discussion as we go through verses 2 through 6, childlessness. I'm childless. Abram says here, I've got, a, I've got an, an option, however, to consider, Lord, for you to consider, and that is, I've got a great servant by the name of Eliezer of Damascus, my top, my number one servant. I trust him with everything. Why don't we just let him inherit all that I have? 
he'll be my heir. And the Lord, look at verse 4, the Lord says, no, this man will not be your heir. He calls him this man, doesn't even refer to his name. He says, but the one, one who will come forth from your own body, he is going to be your heir. In fact, in verse 5, Abram's descendants are going to be like what? Stars of the sky, right? They're going to be numerous. And then you have verse 6, that great declaration of Abram's faith, which we haven't got time to review all that. Tonight, that faith that he's possessed since chapter 12, we talked about that last time. Abram does believe in the Lord, yes. He does trust in the Lord, but just like us, what does he need? He needs a, re a word of reassurance every once in a while. Don't you need that? In many areas of your life, you, I know good and well, you need to be reassured of many things. And the Lord has promised many things, and the Lord is going to reassure Abraham, Lord, uh, yes, Abram, I'm going to take care of these things. So the Lord, we talked about the Lord's reassuring word in verses 1 to 6. Now in the rest of the chapter, which we're going to cover tonight, verses 7 to 21, we're going to talk about the Lord's reassuring covenant. And by the way, I did have a page of notes to give you, but through providential circumstances, that didn't happen. It didn't make it from my house to this building tonight. So hopefully it will next week. But 7 through 21, the Lord's reassuring covenant in chapter 12, go to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, the Lord had given Abram, remember this, the essence of the covenant with Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, in verses 1 through 3. Look at that in chapter 12, 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to a land which I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and you and in you all families of the earth will be blessed. So he gave him those, that essence of the covenant in chapter 12. Now in chapter 15, he's going to make that covenant official. This, and, so, and the first thing that grabs our attention is the reliability of the covenant maker, verse 7. The reliability of the covenant maker. Look at verse 7. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess it. So I have a question. Who is the initiator of this covenant that's going to unfold as we go through this chapter? Who's the initiator of the covenant with Abraham? Who stands behind his promises uh, already made since chapter 12? Who is it that does this? Who is it that can make such an audacious guarantee? I'm going to do all these things, even though none of these things are happening at the present moment. It's the Lord himself. Verse 7, Abraham, I'm the Lord. <laughs> you remember... Do you remember me? This, this covenant is not man-made. It's, uh, it's not thought of as not a creation, a product of the uh, human mind. It's not someone's dream. It's the Lord's plan and the Lord's purpose. Now, in verses 5, 1 through 5, the Lord promised Abram the childless one. He's the childless one at this point. He promised him children. Now, in verse 7, he promises something else he, yet, he does not yet possess. He does not yet possess the land of Canaan, of Israel, so both children and land, very important in this chapter, both children and land are promised to Abram. Actually, verse 7 is in, has two parts to it. First of all, uh, it's a reminder of what the Lord has done in the past for Abram. And secondly, what he will do in the future for Abram and his descendants. First, the Lord reminds Abram of what he's done in the past. He says, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. It's almost as if, if the Lord is saying, Abram, do you remember when I did that? Do you remember when I took you out of that land, of Ur, or the city of Ur of the Chaldeans? Do you remember your spiritual condition at that time? We talked about this. Do you remember you were enslaved to idolatry at that time? Do you remember how I appeared to you and worked in your life? Do you remember how I took you out of the kingdom of darkness and placed you into the kingdom of light? 
You remember all these things? It was me who did this. Now, Abram didn't strike out on his own with some harebrained scheme, thinking one day I'm going to inherit the land of... I'm going to go to Canaan, and I think I'll go over there and inherit, inherit that land. That's not what happened. This is a divinely ordered plan. The Lord set it in motion. It was he who appeared to Abram. It was he who called him to leave his homeland. It's the Lord who took him from, that, from point A to point B. What's the Lord doing here? He's reminding Abram that the Lord God is in charge of this whole operation. He's in charge. He brought Abram out of Ur. He brought him into Canaan. He brought him into a state of belief in Yahweh. He is the one that credited him with righteousness in verse 6. The Lord initiated all this himself. Left to himself, you know where Abram would still be? He'd still be worshiping the moon god in the city of Ur. That's where he'd be. But this has all been the Lord's doing. Secondly, the Lord informs Abram that it reminds him what he will do for him in the future. He says, I'm going to give you this land. He's in Canaan. I'm going to give you this land to possess it. That's been a repeated promise. We've seen it again and again. Genesis 12, 1, we just looked at it. Go forth from your country to the land. That land I'm going to show you. I'll show you as you go. Go. And Abram, Hebrews 11:7, 7, went out not knowing where he was going. And he got there. He arrived. And when he arrives in Canaan, it says in chapter 12, verse 7, the Lord says, to your descendants, I'm going to give this land. Again, he says it. And then at the end of chapter 13, go to the end of chapter 13, verse 14. They're in the land. Chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after the lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are in all these directions, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land, here he goes again, which you see, I'll give it to you and your descendants forever, verse 17. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, I'm going to give this to you. So the Lord's been promising this land all this time now. And now he does it again. This repetition, this reassurance, this is what Abram needs. He needs this repetition again and again. Chapter 15, verse 7, God says, in effect, I'm, I am the Lord, Abram. You can count on me. You can trust in me. I'm trustworthy. There's no need for you to worry whether all these things are going to come about. I said they'd come about. They're going to come about. And here's the point. The Lord's person, you have to understand this, the Lord's person is the basis for the Lord's promise. The Lord's person is the basis for the Lord's promise and the Lord's covenant. God is as good as his word. His character backs up everything he says. He stands behind all his promises. The Lord himself does. He's as good as his word. He's just as reliable in the 21st century A.D. as he was in the 20th century B.C. in Abram's time. Same thing, nothing's changed. All the promises the Lord makes uh, have his full backing. And the God who saved you and me from sin has promised to take us all the way to heaven, even with all the bumps in the road, all the things that confront us, all the difficulties of life, he's promised to do that so we can be confident that the good work he began in us, he'll, he's going to perfect that, he's going to perform that, he's going to complete that, fulfill it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now left to ourselves, where would we, where would we be tonight? We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be sitting here listening to the word of God being preached. We'd be still worshiping the God of our own making. That's where we'd be, not the Lord God. So the Lord reassures Abram that he's reliable. The Lord's been good to us. He took the initiative in our lives just like Abram. He took us out of the kingdom of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of life. It's all his doing. He wants us to be able to say, like Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.12, 
I know whom I have believed. I know him. I'm, I'm confident in him. He's my trust. He's my anchor. He wants Abram to know the same thing. He wants Abram to know in whom he has believed. The covenant maker is completely reliable. And then we move on to the establishment of the covenant. The establishment of the, of the covenant in verses 8 to 21. Chapter 12, the Lord promised to make Abram a great nation. We just saw this, to bless him, make his name great, to make him a blessing to many people. Now he's going to formally ratify that covenant in chapter 15. He's going to make it official. He's going to make it valid. He says all these things to Abram. All through this, verse by verse, he's reassuring him. But even with that reassuring word in verse 7 from our ever-reliable Lord, I'm the Lord, I'm taking care of business here, there's, there seems to be a puzzled look on Abram's faith, face. Something still isn't sitting right with him. And look at verse 8. After all this, he says, Oh, Lord God, how may I know that I'm going to possess it? The Lord says, Abram, you're going to possess the land. Abram says, How may I know that I'm going to possess it? You ever been in a classroom and the teacher is making some pretty definite statements? And yet there's still a lack of clarity in your mind. You don't see, other people may get it. You don't see, I've been there many times. I didn't get it. Certain classes in particular I didn't get. I always got PE class, physical education. I always understood that class. Didn't understand science class very well or math. I did understand PE. But he, this is how Abram is. I don't think Abram is reflecting doubt in his mind. I don't think he's, after all these reassuring words in the first seven verses of chapter 15, I don't think he's doubting God per se. I just think he needs a little more clarity. And notice how he says, what does he say again that he's already said once? He says in verse 8, Lord God. Remember he said that in verse 2? That, that term, Lord God, means sovereign Lord. I know you're sovereign. Abram understands the sovereignty of God. He knows whom he's addressing. He understands that God is in control of all things. He understands that, that God rules all things. He's not unaware of this fact. And it shows, that shows us Abram's faith. He says, Lord God, I know you're Lord God. I know you're the sovereign Lord. Now put yourself in his shoes, and you might be asking the same question. Abram's in a land inhabited by the Canaanites. Okay, this is before Israel took over Canaan and all that. Chapter 12, verse 6, Genesis 12, 6. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Abram arrives on the scene. There's no nation of Israel. It's just him and his favorite nephew, Lot, and the family, and uh, a bunch of animals, <laughs> and wealth. Abram's from Ur, the Chaldeans, about a thousand miles away. He's made this trip. He's a stranger, a foreigner in this land. How in the world is he going to possess this? It's not that he doesn't believe God. He just doesn't know how this is going to happen. How can it happen? He needs some clarity on the issue, maybe even a touch more of reassurance, which is the, the continuing theme throughout this chapter. Notice the Lord does not rebuke him for asking this question. He doesn't say, oh, ye of little faith. And you've got to use that in the King James translation. He doesn't say that. He doesn't respond. He does respond that way to the apostles and they're, as they're on the boat in the storm and they don't uh, always, they're not trusting Jesus as they're in the storm and he says that to them. Where's your faith at? Where's your faith? He doesn't say that here. Sometimes the Lord has to rebuke us for our lack of faith, but he's gracious with Abram here and, and, and he answers him. In fact, the answer covers the rest of the chapter. It has to do with what we call the Abrahamic covenant. Now, there are four aspects pertaining to this covenant in the following verses. There's, number one, a ceremony, secondly, a prophecy, thirdly, a ratification, fourthly, a description. We'll cover those one by one. There's, first of all, ceremony in verses 9 through 12. 
The ceremony is presented in two parts. The first part is verses 9 through 11, actually. And then the second part is in, uh, of the ceremonies in verse 17. Start with part 1 of the ceremony. Look at verses 9 through 11. So he said to him, the Lord said to Abram, Bring me a heifer, a three-year-old heifer, a, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. The Lord says to Abram, I want you to bring me certain kinds of animals. I want three of these animals have to be three years old, a heifer, a ram, a female goat. The other two are not specified by age, turtle dove and a young pigeon. All, these, all five of these animals later on are going to be used as sacrifice, according to Leviticus. As to why three of them must be three years old, we can only speculate. It doesn't say why. Uh, Abram was given no further instruction except to take these animals to the Lord. And he does that. But he does more than that. He doesn't stop there. He lays each half of the, he cuts them in two. And then he lays, he lays each half of the animals in, in uh, two rows opposite each other. The turtle dove and, and young pigeons are so small he doesn't even bother cutting them in two. So what's going on here with all this anyway? Well, one thing's for sure, Abraham knows what's going on. He knows exactly what's going on because he, takes, he does all this stuff. He takes all these actions, arranges all these animals just so. But why these animals? Why cut them in two? Why lay them in two rows? And the answer is because this is a ceremony suited to the establishment of a covenant. Abram knows this. Nations of that day slaughtered animals. There's a lot of discussion about this subject right here, but nations of that day slaughtered animals when making a covenant. Then they divided them in two, and they lead, laid pieces opposite each other. And uh, the persons making the covenant would walk through the pieces, and that would seal the covenant. That would seal the deal. Sign, that's like the signing of a contract. The Chaldeans even had covenants like this. Abram's from Ur of the Chaldeans. He knows about covenant ceremonies. Jeremiah 34, by the way, in the scriptures, Jeremiah 34, 18 and 19, refer to a ceremony of this type, how people cut up animals and walk through them to seal the covenant. The word covenant is used only once in Genesis 15. Turn to verse 18. It's the only time you see the word here. Verse 18, on that day the Lord made a what? Made a covenant with Abram. Made a covenant, meaning literally he cut a covenant with Abram. That's literally what's happening here. Animals are being cut in two, and so they refer to this as cutting a covenant. Covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. Uh, Grudem's definition is this. It's actually an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement. Unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man in this case. Today it's like signing a contract, like I said. It's, although much more ceremonial back then between God and man, obviously. But it's kind of like signing a contract, we could say, to, to help us understand. It's binding. It must be kept. We're going to talk more about who actually is bound to keep this covenant later. But why have these, why, why do all this? Well, and, and by the way, we have these dead animals laying in the open like this. What do you think is going to happen next? Do you think the world of nature might be attracted to this? They are. Look at verse 11. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses. Abram drove them away. Birds of prey swooped down. We could expect this, right? This is something you would expect next. Oh, we're trying to do this covenant with the Lord, and here this happens, right? This is the kind of thing that happens in our, in our daily life, right? And Jesus said in Luke 17, 37, where the corpses, there are the what? The vultures are going to gather together. They're coming after those corpses. That's 
Jesus used that illustration in relation to judgment in the Gospels, but still true that birds of prey, these are unclean birds, by the way, unclean birds, they act according to their nature. They see carcasses down there, and so they swoop down naturally to get food. So, is there a deeper symbolic meaning going on here than meets the eye with all these animals mentioned? Many Bible scholars think there is a deeper symbolic meaning here in this, this verse. They believe that the birds of prey in this passage represent Egypt. They have the reason for saying this. We'll see this in a second. They would say the birds of prey in this passage represent Egypt. The animals, the slain animals, represent Abram's descendants. And in this symbolism, Egypt is going to enslave Israel. Now, that's going to be true, of course. Egypt will enslave Israel, as we're going to read about in a minute. I'm not sure I can go so far as to say these animals in this verse are being used symbolically for this purpose, although it's very intriguing in the light of the verses to follow. I take a more literal view. But I will say this. I do believe, and I know for, for certain, I'm certain of it at least, that there is definite symbolism later on in this chapter. We're going to see it. Now, as for Abram driving away the birds of prey, I think he just realizes that this is a very solemn ceremony, the Lord's ceremony. Uh, he realizes the nature of the covenant being established, and so he acts with zeal on the Lord's behalf. Shouldn't we act with zeal on the Lord's behalf? If the Lord's work is being hindered, if the Lord's work is being opposed, uh, if the false teachers are, are, are abounding, shouldn't we be zealous to take a stand for God? We should, we should be zealous for that kind of thing. We should take a stand for him. And I think Abram's just simply making sure things are right. This action by Abram does not mean it's up to him to establish the covenant. You have to understand that. He's scaring away the birds of prey. It doesn't mean it's up to him to keep this covenant, to establish it, to maintain it, to fulfill the covenant. That's not what's happening here. It's not Abram and his descendants can no more establish and maintain and keep this covenant than any human being on the planet. The Lord's going to take that upon himself to keep the covenant. Abram, like us, is weak. He's just a man of the flesh. In fact, he can't even stay awake during the ceremony. Look what happens in verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, a terror and great darkness fell upon him. The sun is going down. And darkness is falling. And Abram falls fast asleep. This is not a typical night's, night's sleep. He didn't doze off and go into dream, dreamland. This is an abnormally deep sleep. It's the same exact kind of sleep, deep sleep that fell upon Adam. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. Remember that? Genesis 2, 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep. Same thing happened there to fall upon the man and he slept. And what happened during that time? The Lord brought Eve into the world. Maybe you don't sleep well at night. Maybe you have problems sleeping at night. But when the Lord puts a person to sleep in the Bible, guess what happens? That person slept. There was no waking up several times. There was no insomnia. One writer said that this deep sleep refers to a stupor that God causes to fall on a person, blocking out all other perceptions in order that the person may be completely receptive to the divine word. The reason he said that was because you're going to, Abraham is going to get further revelation in this deep sleep. That's, when, that, when this term deep sleep is used in the Bible, oftentimes it's associated with divine revelations. The Lord brought deep sleep upon Abram, and now he's going to proceed to give him further revelation in this condition. Verse 12 says that, Behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. The word terror, or you could translate terror or horror or frightfulness. Frightening situation. It fell upon Abram. He's engulfed in darkness. This is an awe-inspiring scene. 
that Abram experiences. Very solemn occasion. The Lord is overseen in a very real, real way the establishment of this very sacred, serious covenant. It's somewhat similar to other appearances of God in the Bible, like, for example, Jacob, when God appears to Jacob in Genesis 28. And, and that, by the way, when he appears to Jacob in a dream in Genesis 28, he, what, did he, what he does, the Lord reiterates the promise he made to Abram. <laughs> Going back to this again, of, of having many descendants and having the land. And that happens in that dream to Jacob. And when Jacob wakes up in Genesis 28, 16, he says, Surely the Lord in this, is in this place, and I didn't know it. He was afraid, it says. He was afraid. And he says, how full of awe is this place? This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. Similar kind of thing that happened to Abram, I believe here. Later in Exodus 19, the Mosaic Covenant is established. Another covenant established in Mount Sinai. That's going to be under thick cloud and darkness and all that. And the people near the mountain will, will tremble, similar to these kind of other situations. People think they can make God, by the way. They think they can make fun of God. But one day they will find out it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So there's this ceremony that takes place in, the, in this uh, Abrahamic covenant. Secondly, there's a prophe prophecy, a prophecy associated with it in verses 13 to 16, a prophecy. Let, let me read the first few verses, uh, first words of verse 13. God said to Abram, know for certain, notice those words, know for certain, in verse 8, Abram asked the question, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess this land? And now the Lord answers by saying, in effect, you want to know? Do you want to know how this is going to work out? You're not only going to know, you're going to know for certain. I'm going to give you a definite answer because I'm going to tell you how all this is going to unfold. And in this prophecy, four certainties are stated. Four certainties. The first is this. There is a certainty of suffering for Abram's descendants in verse 13. The certainty of suffering. Verse 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain, no doubt about it, that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. What a beginning to this prophecy. This is not the way to win friends and influence people. But it's the truth. Abram's descendants, were, are they going to be strangers in a land that's not theirs? In other words, they're not going to be in the land of Canaan. They're going to be in a totally different country. Furthermore, they're going to be enslaved. They're going to serve masters, not of their own choosing, masters that they don't want to serve. They're going to work for masters they don't want to work for. They're not going to receive any benefits for their work. They're going to be enslaved. And they're going to be oppressed. They're going to be harshly mistreated. And if that wasn't bad enough, the length of this period of slavery and oppression is going to last for 400 years. You imagine, like that reminds me of the 400 silent years before Matthew. 400 years not spent in the land promised to them. Abram, I'm going to give you this land, but wait a minute, for 400 years you're not going to be there. What land are we talking about here? Where are they going to be? Well, we know as we read Genesis, that the Israelites wind up in Egypt due to a famine. Now, they do fine in Egypt for a while, but then the tables turn, and there arises a king who doesn't know Joseph, and the Egyptians become worried about the ever-growing population of the Israelites, and they figure, we better do something to keep them under control. And so you go to Exodus chapter 1, and Exodus 1, in verse 11, it says this. <clears throat> so the Egyptians appointed taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with hard labor. Afflict them with hard labor. The word afflicted in Exodus 1 is translated oppressed in Genesis 15, 13, where it says you're going to be oppressed. 
Genesis, the same words used, just translated afflicted in Exodus. You're going to be afflicted. You're going to be oppressed. Exodus 1, referring back to the prophecy of Genesis 15. Exodus 1.12 says, Egyptians are, Egyptians are going to continue. They're going to continue to afflict you. It's an ongoing thing. Ephesians, or Exodus 1.13, the Egyptians are going to, they're going to compel Israel to labor rigorously. Uh, Exodus 1.14, it says the Egyptians made the Israelites... Lives bitter with hard labor? Wow, that's really tough. And, and the Lord is telling them in advance. He says, Abram, your people are going to suffer for 400 years. And in time, Israel's going to think of Egypt as what? The house of slavery. You see that throughout the, the Old Testament. This is the house, Egypt was the house of slavery. 400 years. And Stephen preaches a sermon in Acts chapter 7. At the beginning of the sermon, he mentions those 400 years. But in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, and then also, and then Paul later in Galatians 3.17 says, it's 430 years. So why does it say that? Why 400 sometimes? Why 430 other times? Sometimes, often the Bible rounds off numbers. Rounds them off, and sometimes it uses exact numbers. Sometimes it uses both. So it's, we do this all the time. We say, oh, it's about 400 years, and what we meant was 412 years. The Bible does that too. So rounded number here. 430 is the exact number. The point is this, there's going to be suffering before blessing for Abram's descendants. Think about that. After all this promise of land, there's going to be suffering first. Why? Well, what can we say except simply this is, this is simply God's sovereign plan in the coming years. Now, it plays into verse 16, which we're going to see in a minute. This is his plan. But as to why Israel suffers for 400 years, all I can say is this is the Lord's plan. <laughs> Now, if we had been giving this prophecy to Abram, if we had been doing this, not the Lord, we would have a different plan. We would have said, Abram, here's what we would have said. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and, and your descendants. And then we would have quoted Je Jeremiah 29, 11 out of context to him. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. God forbid any, anybody should ever suffer as a believer is what many think. That's not how it is. That's what we would say. But the Lord always tells it like it is, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. If I was deathly sick, I went to a doctor, I would prefer that he gave me the truth about my physical condition than pretend that all was well and give me false hope. And that's what God does in his word. He lets people know the certainty of the future. Here's what it's going to be like. We may not want to hear it. A lot of people don't want to hear what the Lord has to say about the future. But it's the truth. Now, it's the suffering. That's part of God's plan. It's not easy if, I were, if we were doing some kind of theology of suffering conference, which we're not going to do. Don't, don't suggest that to Mike, please. Then we would have to think through this carefully and go through all these details. However, uh, it's not easy for us to think about this, is it? I don't, we, we, the last two weeks we've seen suffering in our own family with the death of a loved one and people who are suffering. We've seen, I know people in this auditorium we've, who have suffered because of the same type thing. It's not easy for us, but it's reality. I like you know, why, what Paul told the Philippian believers in Philippians 1.29. Listen to Philippians 1.29. He says, for to you Philippian believers, for you Philippian believers, it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. Is that, doesn't seem like they should say that, right? We should just, we like the part where it says, you've been, it's been granted to you to believe on Christ. We like that part. But it's also been granted to you to suffer for his sake. Not an easy thing to do. We're talking about believing in believers. Here's one thing to know. Believers suffer. 
If they, the, more you, the more you show your belief, the more you're going to suffer. Believers suffer for the Lord's sake to some degree or another. In Acts 14, now in America we have it made these days, but still, the more you show your belief, the more you suffer, and who knows how long this is going to last. Acts 14, 22, Paul had been suffering for the gospel's sake, and he said to the believers there, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And we're not going through the great tribulation. He's not talking about that. Through many trials, difficulties, sufferings, that we're going to enter the kingdom of God. And Paul knew all about that. Seems to be the lot of God's people to suffer to some degree for his glory. And there are many passages that speak to this issue. So there's going to be a certainty of suffering for Abram's descendants in this prophecy regarding, uh, in, in association with the, with the covenant. Secondly, another certainty, the certainty of judgment for Egypt. The certainty of judgment for Egypt, verse 14. He says there, uh, the Lord says, I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, you will come out, they will come out with many possessions. He's going to judge them. God does judge Egypt. We, 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 when we read Exodus, we see that. He sends the ten plagues against them. He sends the destroying angel to kill the firstborn of, of everybody, of every family in Egypt. He drowns the Egyptian army in the sea. All these things, and Israel does come out with many possessions. Exodus 12, 36 will go on to say, Israel plundered the Egyptians as they departed. They're going to come out with many possessions. So the Lord will take justice on Egypt. The Lord says, look, here's my prophecy. You're going to suffer for 400 years. However, I'm also going to judge that nation for what they do. You're going to be blessed in the end. He's going to make sure that they, Egypt is punished for what they did to Israel. Third part of this prophecy, <clears throat> there's the certainty of peace for Abram. The certainty of peace in verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. The Lord now directs his remarks specifically to Abram. As for you, this is, gonna, this is what's going to happen. Now, this is the first time in the Bible the word peace is recorded, shalom. First time you see this in the scriptures. Abram's going to go to the grave in peace. He's going to come to the end of his life with a sense of contentment, a sense of fulfillment, to be buried at a good old age, at a ripe old age, we could say, was a sign of divine favor. God is favoring Abram. In fact, he's going to live to be 175 years of age. Now, when it comes to our time to die, I hope we can look back and say, I lived a contented and fulfilling life because I served the Lord. None of us are living a perfect life. But if we could say we lived a fulfilling and contented life because we served the Lord, that is going to be a blessing. You may have many troubles in your life, but to spend them as Abram did, Serving the Lord, that's the blessing. That's the blessing of it all. Fourthly, there's a certainty of a time limitation for the Amorites. Certainty of a time limitation for the Amorites, verse 16. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, the land of Canaan, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. You ever wonder about that? Iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The term Amorites can designate one of many groups of people in the land of Canaan actually the major group, or it can, as here, it can designate, designate all the Canaanites. When it says Amorites, it's talking about all the Canaanites in this particular verse. The word generation, the fourth generation it talks about, has to do with a certain amount of time, not necessarily a specified number of years. That time can be different in different passages. Depends on the context. The 400 years of verse 13 goes along with the four generations of verse 16. That makes each generation 100 years in this particular passage only. After 400 years, the descendants of Abram will return to Canaan land. By that time, the iniquity of the Canaanites will reach full measure. Now, what's going on here? Well, the people that lived in Canaan 
living in the land of Canaan before Israel conquered them, as I said before, were very, very evil people. They were, we could say, beyond wicked, exceedingly evil, evil, totally depraved sinners who allowed their, their, their depravity to run its full course. You name the sin, they probably committed it. Evil people. You can read about, read Leviticus 18. Nobody wants to read Leviticus. Read Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, passages like that, and you can see how evil, what, they, what it says there not to do is what they were doing. All kinds, of, even including sending their children up to, in the Molech to be thrown into the fire. I mean, horrible things. The Israelites were kept out of the land of Canaan until the sin of the Amorites had tried the patience of God to the point of no return. And God said, I've had enough of these people. 400, all, this, all these years of evil they've committed, I've had enough of this. I'm going to give them time. I'll give them time. However, there's a time, there's a, there's a place where my patience is going to run out. And at that time, the Lord's going to send Joshua into the land of Canaan to conquer the Amorites. Their time's up. You didn't repent. All you did was sin like crazy the whole time for 400 years. Done with you. Lesson to be learned from all this. The Lord is extremely patient with sinners. But his patience will not last forever. Just like we saw earlier in the book of uh, Genesis. So if you haven't done so, make tonight the night of your repentance before God. Trust in Christ before it's too late for you. So there's this limitation, time of limitation for the Amorites. Their iniquity is going to get to the point of the going to go to the top of God's patience. That's it. So we have a ceremony in chapter 15 of this covenant. We have a prophecy, a prophecy associated with this covenant. Thirdly, a ratification. A ratification, verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. This is the second part of the ceremony. Uh, the first part was in verses 9 through 11. Now, remember, in ancient ceremonies, both parties normally, covenant ceremonies, both parties normally walk through the animal halves to, to ratify the covenant, to seal it. It's like, sign, like I said, signing the dotted line, signing the contract. If it's a bilateral covenant, two, two parties are involved, both parties are going to walk through making that agreement together. If it's a unilateral covenant, just one party, only the Lord's going to walk through it. But what, is, what do we see passing through here? We see a smoking oven and a flaming torch passing through the pieces in verse 17. Is that, what is that? The smoking oven or fire or smoking fire pot was used uh, actually to cook, to cook baked bread, Leviticus 26, 26, to, uh, also to roast grain, things like that. It's the smoke, I think, that stands out here, though. And then this torch, that, that word is used elsewhere, as in Ezekiel 1.13, Daniel 10.6. To, that has to do with the awe-inspiring presence of God, symbolizing the presence of God. So these two objects, smoking, fire pot, flaming torch, fire and smoke. In the scripture the Lord has spoken of often, he's often represented by fire and smoke and similar elements. We see that all over the place, Hebrews 13. It says our God is what? A consuming fire. Uh, Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Read, Mount, read Exodus 19 when you get a chance. The Lord's presence is associated with these elements. <clears throat> Exodus 19, 18. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And it goes on and on. In Exodus 19, you talk about darkness and smoke and dark clouds and all these kind of things. The Lord appeared to Moses what? How did he appear to Moses? And what? A burning bush. A burning bush. Bush on fire. So I believe verse 16 
we're talking about the Lord and we're talking about Abram, and then this happens. I have to believe that verse 16 has to do with the presence of God. Smoking oven, the flaming torch are symbols of the presence of God. And so what is, he, what is he saying? The Lord alone is passing through these pieces. He alone is ratifying the covenant. He alone is signing the contract. He holds himself alone responsible for the carrying out of this covenant. The covenant doesn't depend upon Abram to fulfill it. It depends upon the Lord. That doesn't mean Abram can live any old way he pleases. It's like people say, well, you, you, you believers, or you Christians think that you can... You know, once saved, always saved, and you can live any way you want to. No, the Bible never teaches that. And it's not saying that about Abram either. It's simply saying that the covenant is based on God alone for its fulfillment. That's all. There's finally a description in verses 18 and 20, the last aspect of this covenant, a description of uh, what's ha uh, what we're talking about, verses 18 to 20, 21 here. He's been promising land to Abram. Now, what are the dimensions of the land? What is the description of the land? How does it look? Look at verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I'm going to give, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the, the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So he's talking about the dimensions of the land. How far are we talking about here anyway? What land? Land of Canaan, land of Israel, extending from the river of Egypt in the south. I don't believe that's the Nile River, as many do not believe. It is probably a river called the Wadi El Arish, which is like the southern border of Judah. And uh, so you go from there in the south to the northern border boundary, which is the River Euphrates. And all these people groups in between make up the land of Canaan. They made up Canaanite population. All that land is promised to Abram's descendants. Now, the extent of this territory, or nearly the extent of it, was ruled twice during Israel's history. Uh, Solomon's reign in 1 Kings 8, and during the reign of Jeroboam 2 and 2 Kings 14. But I believe the Abraham covenant is still in effect. It still has a future fulfillment. The Lord doesn't make a land promise to Israel and take back on it or somehow redo that into where it somehow ends up with the church, somehow or another, however that works. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Chapter 17 says it's an everlasting covenant. That promise is made, this promise about land I'm talking about, is made to Abram's physical descendants having to do with the physical land of Israel. You can see that in Genesis. We can see this clearly. That's all it means. You say, well, what does that got to do with me? What do I care about the land of Israel for? Well, here's the thing. If the Lord cannot fulfill his promise <coughs> of land that he definitely made to the physical nation of Israel, how do we expect him to fill any promises to us or any of his other promises in his word? We can't. So he makes this promise. And in this chapter, the Lord has reassured Abram through his word, and secondly, through his covenant, Abram can trust the Lord. Here's the bottom line. Abram can trust the Lord, and so can we. We can trust his promises. What he said, he's going to fulfill. He always does. <clears throat> he always has. As Jesus said in John 14, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You believe in God, believe also in me. We're believers, right? We believe. <laughs> and we're, we believe in the only one who can always reassure our hearts in any circumstance, any circumstance you're in tonight. You're going to face this week, you're going to face in your life. The one to reassure you is the Lord himself. Do you need reassurance tonight? You, do you, people come to me sometimes and say, I don't know if I'm, I'm not sure if I'm saved. I need assurance of my salvation. Do you need reassurance of your salvation? 
you trust in the Lord? Do you need reassurance of God's love for you? Do you need reassurance of his presence with you? Do you need reassurance of his peace that he can give you? You can only find that reassurance as you look to the Lord and as you look to his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful again for your word. Pray that you'll <clears throat> use it in our lives tonight to, to strengthen our faith in you, to strengthen our confidence in you, strengthen our trust in you, that we might faithfully follow you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.